Spielberg, the one-man abomination of desolation usurping the holy temple of cinema, would of course go on to deliver much, much worse shit than this. Hello again. All right, hold on. Let me just... Ex- I'll extend the mic. Oh, there you go. I can hear it. Yeah. I just extended the mic. I made it longer. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Wait, let me get my input a little higher. How's that? Oh, that's great. Oh, okay, okay. All right. You can begin. All right. <laughs> Into weird scenes inside the gold mine. Sorry about that. I laugh at it. You can begin. Uh, you listen to the weird scenes inside the gold mine. Your guide to all things fun and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight we are getting wired with John Belushi on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network. Now on Podbean. So, good evening, and welcome to the sixth episode of the twelfth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze and virago of vituperativeness, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, like I said, tonight... He only spent four years as one of the original cast of Saturday Night Live and started a mere eight films, largely simultaneously, only surviving a single year after leaving the show. And yet John Belushi was practically a phenomenon, much beloved for his Samurai Butcher, Captain James T. Kirk, Elwood Blues, and more, not to mention his iconic frat boy hero, Bluto Blutarski, in Animal House. He famously brought the pointedly contentious punk band Fear to the show, and both their own audience-baiting shtick and bringing a real punk contingent to Mosh and Stage Dive on Air resulted in the show pulling the plug mid-performance and banning them, and most if not all punk, from the show, rarely appearing this one in reruns. Apparently he also tried to get them on the soundtrack for Neighbors, but the producers didn't want to use their track in the film. He even managed to work with not only Jack Nicholson and John Landis, but Steven Spielberg in the big-budget bomb 1941, but the ubiquitous drug culture that drove SNL took him all too young at the ripe old age of 32. Tonight, we delve into the brief but wildly popular career of John Belushi, only here on Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Born in 1949 to Albanian immigrants in Chicago, Illinois, John Adams Belushi's folks were of decidedly humble origins, a staffer at a pharmacy and restaurant owner. He apparently dropped a Garage Rock 45 with his high school band that went nowhere, came up through Canada's Second City, actually the Chicago branch, but as you know, Second City gave us the entire cast of SCTV, and there he met longtime pal and regular co-star Dan Aykroyd, and National Lampoon, where he was part of both the radio show and touring cast, and of course picked up by Lauren Michaels for Saturday Night Live. For various reasons, both Belushi and Aykroyd left Saturday Night Live in 1979, going on to film The Blues Brothers, effectively the first SNL spin-off film, using characters they developed on that show and even recording an album with members of Booker T and the MGs, and the black comedy Neighbors. He managed to pull off a third post-SNL film, and it actually was his very best performance, Continental Divide. Unfortunately, as we'll get into in more detail later, his drug addictions caught up with him, and after doing a speedball and a notoriously deadly mix of heroin and cocaine so you get both an up and a down if your heart doesn't explode on you, he was found dead on March 5, 1982, in his room at the famed Chateau Marmont Hotel in L.A. They caught the girl who sold him the ship because she was likely also high. Apparently, she drove Belushi's car into a one-way the opposite direction on the Marmont the same day, and eventually she went down for a year and a half of manslaughter. 
He was enough of a cult icon that his grave turned into a Jim Morrison affair, with kids hanging out there and leaving all kinds of shit by it. So they actually dug him up and reburied him in an unmarked grave. And famously, Anthrax wrote the song Evil Nick of and a Nice Fucking Life about him. Though, while a cautionary lyric that praises him in the first verses, it comes off a lot more snarky than laudatory. My old buddy and I level co-host Matt, who bills himself as the, quote, fat kid with glasses, I don't really think he's that fat, it's from modern standards, it's just a bit hefty. He idolizes the guy, and weirdly, despite being very much Sicilian rather than Armenian, like his hero, looked a whole hell of a lot like him in his younger days, to the point where not only was he prone to drop that cocked eyebrow thing Belushi used to do all the time, but apparently his townies used to call him Belushi, or at least so he always said. So this show is very much dedicated to you, buddy. According to Wired, he had known a few original cast members, like Gilda Radner, Chevy Chase, and Dan Aykroyd, and some SCTV folks like Harold Ramis and Joe Flaherty, before Saturday Night Live, meeting them through his tenure in Chicago's Second City, and visits to the Toronto branch that SCTV emerged from, and then through his time with National Lampoon, their radio show and touring productions, which John wound up directing as well. Apparently, Aykroyd, who clicked with John immediately, drove all the way down from Toronto on his motorcycle to see John in New York City and had stopped off to call him, like, hey, where are you, man? I don't know where to go. In a gay bar. In full leathers. <laughs> in full leathers, he pulls in. It's like, yeah, he just happens to pick this place, and it's a gay bar. Belushi's going, oh, my God. I'm coming to save you. No, he says, they're really going to get the wrong idea the way you're dressed. <laughs> so I figured that was worth sharing. So, yeah, so tonight we'll be talking John Belushi and... Again, I'm Doc Savage, and with me again is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Yeah, John Belushi, uh, uh, if ever you can attribute the term fireball. Oh, yeah. You know, fade out before you uh, burn. Uh, what what was that Neil Young song? Fade out before you rust away? Better off to burn out before you fade away. Yes, thank you. I should know that. John Belushi was, was that person. Mm-hmm. Very, very, yo, so many of his skits in Saturday Night Live are funny to this day. They're, they're legendary. You know, the Greek diner, no Coke, Pepsi, no Pepsi, Coke, yo, and hamburger, 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 <laughs> hamburger, hamburger, and and Captain Kirk. You mentioned Captain Kirk. Yeah, he loved Bill Shatner. And I saw a thing not too long ago. Bill Shatner got to sit down and view all the people, or a portion of people who over the years had. Uh, copied him or you know and he, he actually liked belushi's version he says this is different you know but he said i remember him and you know um jump you know he did so much stuff but you know so good the guy the guy unlike who a lot of people really enjoy i, I wasn't a huge fan of uh, also the late john candy but he was also talented. I'm not going to take his talent away. But Belushi's, John Belushi's talent was immeasurable. The guy was like, just, I don't know where it came from. Yeah, I'm going to differ with you slightly because I absolutely love John Candy, but no, no, more no, for so TV. I, but I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And I'll mention this again later, but there's a lot of, all right, let's be straightforward with this. There's a lot of coked up comedians out there whose whole shtick yeah. is basically based on the fact that they're fucking wired which is why that book was named Wired. By the way, that's not like an Albert Goldman affair. I know a lot of people get like, oh, it's one of those like sleazy tell-all books. Woodward was half of the guys that broke the Watergate investigation. He's a pretty serious, level-headed political reporter. <laughs> so he went into this, talked about just about everybody, especially Judy Belosi as John's widow, and wrote this book that it's a bit one note when you read through it because you can tell where it's going almost from the first page, but it's actually not what you think it is. And well, I'll give you some more perspective yeah, on it. But, but John's widow, Judy, was no saint. Oh, hell yeah. no. no. And she missed that. Yeah, you know, like she blamed a lot of shit on Kathy Smith, who you mentioned. And 
And you Jude. They were all that they way. They were all you, that you know, way. Ackroyd, all these people that were involved on every level. You know, John Landis, the people at SNL, the people that he's on stage with his comedians at Second City. In 81, you know? in 81, John was hanging out with the Rolling Stones. I've seen these pictures. <laughs> Looking fucked up, hanging out with the Rolling Stones and Margaret Trudeau. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And Margaret Trudeau. Maggie Trudeau, who they wrote Starfucker right. about. <laughs> right. They were hanging out with Maggie for a long time. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, she was the wife of uh, shooting heroin with the president. <laughs> yeah, she was the wife of uh, Pierre Trudeau. Pierre Trudeau, the PM of Canada. PM of Canada, and you know, and and you know, she, she was around for a long time, even when Trudeau wasn't president anymore, I believe, mm-hmm. prime minister. And um, I seen all these pictures of all these guys hanging out. Yeah, I think John was instrumental of getting the Stones to appear on their ill-fated Saturday Night Live gig, the, the one and only they ever did. Jagger did it later on, solo, but, you know, the story goes that they were, like, doing blow all day long. <laughs> yeah. And Lorne Michaels said, you guys got to rehearse, you know, you can't just show up, but, you know, we're going to film this live for TV. And by the way, Lorne Michaels and everybody there, they have blow on the table all the time in the writer's right, room. they so. have blow on the table all the time. And so There's no saints these, here. <laughs> these guys are playing all day long, doing blow all day long, you don't know blow means, you know, cocaine. No, look it up, sniffing. <laughs> and, and and blowing out their voice, no pun intended. So when it came time for the program to be transmitted live, you know, Charlie Watts is in a skit, Keith, Ronnie Wood's in a skit. Uh, I don't remember the other guys. That was the hamburger hamburger, you know, because John's famous hamburger hamburger thing. And, yeah, it's supposed to be based on his father's diner or whatever. Right, so like Charlie and Ronnie are guy, guys in the diner. I'm like, oh, that's cute. And the Stones supposed to do a couple of songs. I'm like, Jagger's voice is shot. <laughs> you know, they would have canceled the gig if his voice was that. But they just kind of muddled through it. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. I, and I have in my possession uh, copies of the rehearsals mm-hmm. that they did throughout the day. Hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was so much better. Yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah, you know, but it was Lauren Michaels' fault. You should you should have put the kibosh on. You should may not allow them to rehearse all day long. Anyway, that was a side thing. So, yeah, because the point was I was trying to get it. There's a lot of coked up comedians and a lot of who left us early. You know, people like Chris Farley, for example. Or I mean, he's still around, but Bobcat Goldthwaite or Sam Kinison or you know, this happens very often in stand up comedy, especially among the older crowd. But you know, John was. None of those people, I mean, even the most physical of them, somebody like Farley, they didn't have what he had. He was a live artist, like a firecracker. You never knew what the hell he was going to do. Uh. And he was very physical, very slapsticky, you know, pratfall kind of a guy. And he's just, I don't know, he, it was all improv. I mean, okay, yes, I know it was supposed to be improv and all that shit, but he just kind of shot it right out and the hell with it. Let's see who's there. And his big thing, I think the guy, especially when I'm reading about him, he was a very needy fellow, mm-hmm. which... A lot of us who do entertainment and who, like, really kind of live for the stage, we kind of are that way, you know, underneath how bold we are. We're just kind of looking for that audience kick, that approval, that, you know, that high that we get off of this. And he was just, I don't know, he really threw himself into it. So you got something that was obnoxious. (laughs) The floor of his hand at the drop of a hat is very difficult behind the scenes, even beyond the drugs. And... Yet you would get something that could be genius or it could be shit. You never knew what was going to happen. Mm. And you can't take your eyes off him. He's always one of those guys that like him or hate him. 
he gets out on the stage or in the middle of a skit, and it's a group thing, and you're going to be watching him and ignore the others because they're there half the time, which says a lot. I mean, okay, yeah, a lot of it is just he was that high and that wild, but, you know, there's, there's something to be said for just being able to stand out and make an impression, and he certainly did that. <laughs> but go ahead, would you want to? Uh, we could jump to the first film. All right, so he was on Saturday Night Live for, geez, 79 friggin' episodes from 75 to 80. But early on, and I believe this one was from National Lampoon, he was actually in a voiceover in this ridiculous adult cartoon called Tarzoon, Shame of the Jungle. Mm. Is that it? What did you do, graduated from the Evelyn Wood School of Fucking? You fairy, you couldn't get up with a forklift. So opines Jane, mistress of the titular Tarzan knockoff, in this typical boxy quote, adult cartoon for the head shop crowd out of Belgium. Bad Asterix meets Disney-style Rococo animation with goofily exaggerated caricatures the order of the day. Crass sex humor designed to bring even more giggles to the perpetually stoned. The me generation was really something else, huh? So, the plot, quote-unquote, such as it is, makes Fritz the Cat sound like Homer's Odyssey. Africa is shaped like an overweight woman, and the bush country is exactly where you'd expect, at least those who grew up before the women as Barbie dolls became a thing. A bald-headed woman named Bazongas, who rolls over a kingdom of little guys in cock-and-balls outfits, wants to take over the world. But first she wants a head of hair to transplant into her chrome dome so that people will take her seriously. I'm not kidding you. So she naturally chooses Jane for her victim. Jane, who just kicked Tubby out because he shit in the sack, proceeds to screw Cheetah the monkey and then gets gang-banged and kidnapped by the penis man. I'm not kidding you. This is real. Tarzan goes after them, bumping into a group of British explorers and their cook who all wind up eaten by cannibals. The caricatures are pretty offensive. One even sings the blues, and another mumbles to himself nonstop like lightning from Abe's Nandy or Step and Fetch It. Again, seriously. Starzan is saved by a fat, incessantly belching drunk, voiced, of course, by the future Bluto Butarski, John Belushi, who claims to be a perfect master Hindu yogi and flies around on a magic carpet flown by birds. Belushi yammers on drunkenly, contradicting himself several times, before trying to show his yogic mastery of gravity and fall into his death, leaving Tarzan to crash himself, but he's saved by Cheetah. They confront the Aisha Sheehan a lot before the hair transplant. Someone pulls the fire alarm, and the penis men put condoms over themselves and dive into Aisha's nether parts. She explodes. There's an even cruder sex joke scenario. Roll credits. Other dub voices in this amazing piece of crap include Bill Murray, around the same time he was voicing the Human Torch for the short-lived Fantastic Four radio show, and Christopher Guest of Death Wish from our Bronson show on Spinal Tap. It's about the same level of mentality as Flesh Gordon, just without the amusing Harryhausen claymation and cheap practical effects to enliven it. The cartoon's crude, deliberately offensive, and decidedly juvenile, and other than a bit of shock value, there's really nothing funny about this, which you could also say about some of the strangely much-praised earlier work that we're about to discuss. Have you seen this one? What's your take? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I saw this. It. It's funny. It's even, it's even worse than Fritz the Cat. It goes out yes. even further than... I don't know uh, how many of our listeners remember. Back in the days, the Pussycat and the World Theater, famous theaters in new york city they used to show adult films used to show uh, subtitle uh, dubbed in english as if it mattered uh, <laughs> uh german french and uh, swedish cartoons there they were pornographic cartoons some of them very humorous and, and i think this is where they got the idea from 
because, you know, it was a very continental crowd hanging out in New York back in the day. I'm sure these guys went to the, you know, hey, let's go, Pussycat. All right, what's playing? It doesn't matter, man. Oh, look at these cartoons. I'm sure somebody got the idea to do this. Bad idea to dub it so badly because it's just like it takes you out of it, you know. We have no idea what the original is. The original Belgian intent of the filmmakers, you know, just to give them like a little like two cents there. You know, maybe they did not intend it to be so crass, but you know, this is such crap. You know, it is. It's total crap. It's not what we're talking about, Valentine or something. Guido Creepax. This is just crap. <laughs> There's no defending it. And even if you like Fritz the Cat, which okay, you know, I remember my folks always told me that they took me to a drive-in when I was really little, and they were gonna leave. They're like, oh my god, this sucks. But I was laughing so hard, and I liked Fritz so much that they stayed for the rest of it. You know, God knows, I was like four or five years old. But right, but there were a couple of things released in the U.S. back in the day, dub. And but this is one of the most to get a a more prominent release because of the the dubbing. You know, the dub cast. You know, they just sold it on the names of the people. Yes. Or at this time, were known to TV audiences. So wow. <laughs> yeah. So, 1978, Animal House. Let's be honest here. Let's talk about some overpraised nonsense. While there was a light 50s nostalgia thing going on in the mid to late 70s from stuff like Sha Na Na, American Graffiti, and its Boulder Rest TV knockoff Happy Days, the film that kicked off a wave of backwards-looking teen sex comedies throughout the subsequent decade, I think everything from the Porky's films to Revenge of the Nerds, and even all the way up to the American Pie films, was Animal House. Mm. There's really no plot, even by comparison to the aforementioned progeny it spawned. A couple of freshmen join a frat that's considered trouble, led by slovenly proto-booger Bluto Blutarski, whose idea of comedy is sticking straws up his nose and filling his mouth with mashed potatoes and punching his cheeks in an impression of popping a zit. <laughs> yeah, Jason Biggs sticking his dick in a hot apple pie is starting to sound real good by comparison, ain't it? Strangely enough, given most of his other work, Belushi isn't the force of anarchy and abandon here. That's Bruce McGill, who wound up in the John claude Van Damme's... It doesn't say. <laughs> Do you remember what movie he was in? <laughs> Damn thing. In, in a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. But, <laughs> Ide, who goes around in a German military biker helmet and customizes a beat-up car into a sort of tank to wreck the homecoming parade. Stephen First from Scavenger Hunt, The Unseen, and Silent Rage is the likable doofus and nerd of the frat. John Vernon of Dirty Harry, Charlie Varick, and The Black Windmill, among others, those films being covered in our Clint Eastwood, Joe Don Baker, and Michael Caine shows, is the principal with a stick up his ass who wants the frat shut down and its members expelled, and surprising names like Amadeus's Tom Halsey, Kevin Bacon of Friday the 13th and X-Men First Class, which we covered in the Slasherama show with SOV director Tim Ritter over at Third Eye Cinema, and our first Marvel superhero show here at Weird Scenes, and Donald Sutherland, who we did a whole show on as yet another dope-smoking authority figure like he was in films like Kelly's Heroes, MASH, and Spies, all fill out the cast. Like the aforementioned American Graffiti, Animal House also had a softened-up TV iteration, 1979's Delta House, mm. which forefronted Flounder while retaining both Dean Wormer and D-Day. I remember not minding it as a kid, but I'd hardly take that to the bank, particularly when the competition was shit like Ken Speed and Brown Chip. It's really bad, and like all too many 70s comedies, it's lowbrow drug and sex humor is very likely to rub modern audiences the wrong way. I never really liked it, and I was always baffled by its popularity. Just like Saturday Night Live itself saved much of the Eddie Murphy and Mike Myers work later. The early cast, I don't know. Even to this day, I watch this, and I'm like, most of this is just lame drug humor. It's not even funny like Cheech and Chong. So, what's your take? Well, I, I didn't dislike it as much as you. I, it's a weird thing. This is like before John Landis would actually find his footing as, as a brilliant filmmaker for a few years. <laughs> but... Um, 
it's a strange thing. It's a strange animal. Um, I did a, how many years ago was this? Maybe not so long ago, five, six years ago. I did a Q&A with one of a lot of the surviving cast, including Kim Matson, Peter Riegert, Karen Allen, James Dalton, quite a few people. There were a lot of them. I did it twice, actually. Karen Allen, Dwayne Jesse, who plays Otis. Remember Otis Day in the Nights? They make me want to shout, come on now. <laughs> um, and no one had a bad thing to say about John. I don't know if that's anything bad about him. <laughs> or no one had a bad thing to say about him. They said he was like electric. You know, he was yeah. like just amazing. It's not a great film. It's not a perfect movie. But yes, you, you hit the nail totally on the head there. You know, everything that came in its wake, Porky's. And, and and all the other crap movies that went all the way up to American <laughs> Pie and probably through it mm-hmm. was probably due to this thing. You know, Belushi, who would work with the director again, Landis. Landis. It's just I don't know what what's going on with this role here. It's almost like this is what we think you're gonna do. Just go with it. Yeah, they apparently built it around him in one of his stage personas, like some of the stuff you saw on Saturday Night Live, basically. Yeah. And they kept taking away lines. He wanted more, be more in the film and have more lines. They kept saying, okay, let's pull this away, pull this away, make him do it all physical because he loves doing physical comedy. So what you got in the end is this guy that's got one little speech at the end of the film, basically, you know, get them all fired up to go do the bust up the homecoming parade, which is, you know, the ending of the film and probably the best part of it. But that's it. The rest of the time he's just, you know, belching and spitting food up and, you know, that, that's kind of it, farting. I mean, well, no, he's, no, he's got he's got a few moments like there, there's some moments like I don't know if it was like intentional or maybe it was supposed to be comically semi-intentional. There's a couple of moments where he looks toward the screen like have a moment of lucidity. Yes, it's yeah. like breaking the third wall. Like okay, he's breaking like he's, the third wall when like, he's peeping on the girls. He goes and looks at you and raises an eyebrow like hmm, look at this. An eyebrow <laughs> like I think I'm straight right now for this moment. Yeah. <laughs> It's a weird film, uh, huge following. Yes. And and uh, yes, there was a Delta House. There was the TV operation. <laughs> there might have even been a semi-sequel, too, out there with very few of the cast. But uh, there's nothing quite like it. I mean, uh, no, that's true. And it's the first of the National Lampoon. We know there was a magazine and, and a very strange one, too. Yeah, it was kind of dark, which is strange about it. You figure, okay, it's a comedy magazine, whatever. even like Mad Magazine, okay, this is like absurdist satire and whatever. Not only were they not afraid to go to the edge, which you could say about Mad as well, but there was really, there's a lot of jokes about death and disease. and like, what? Yeah, it came out of the West Coast, so after the flower power druggy culture, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know what to expect, and you didn't expect that. And, and I actually used to pick them up quite often. And yo, know, some of the uh, some of the writers from National Lampoon magazine became staff writers for Saturday Night Live yes. back in the day. And and you know, I think that begat this. But uh, and then when they did that thing with Chevy Chase, Chevy Chase with the uh, <laughs> which one? Oh, Vacation National Lampoon oh, of course, Vacation. Yeah. yeah, the first at least the first two are very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they tried to expand that, and then it's just that they hit the wall. Probably. <laughs> to some people, the, some of the best things are the, the post-credits scene for La National Lampoon's uh, Animal House, where they, they show what happened to the people years later. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually a good part. Yeah, like Nita Meyer being killed in Vietnam and this guy, you know, getting raped in prison. I was like, oh, <laughs> wait, sick. Going South was next. 
actually before that, oh, sorry. same year, and that's okay, because it's TV things, you're not thinking of it, oh, boy. was The Ruddles, All You Need Is Cash. Oh, oh The Ruddles, yeah. yes, I love The Ruddles, yes, 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 go ahead. Monty Python's Eric Idle, also of yellow beard and nuns on the run, co-directs this not very funny Beatles spoof with a Gary Weiss, whose only notable credit was the lame Mel Brooks knockoff Bible epic, Holy Moses. A TV special, and apparently it aired, it got the lowest ratings of any show aired that week on all three majors. For some reason, PBS picked it up for regular airings over the subsequent decade, proving that those pledge phone dollars never go to anything that people really want to say. Alongside Python's idol, Michael Palin, and Neil Innes, there are several Saturday Night Live folks involved, like Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, Belushi, and Dan Aykroyd, and some musicians like Mick and then-wife Bianca Jagger, Ron Wood, and Paul Simon. What's it like to be such an asshole? Idol and company spent an inordinate amount of time in those pre-Photoshop days, pasting up old photos and newsreel footage of Beatlemania to insert themselves into the same, and just as much recreating various press conferences, recorded concert footage, and film videos of the Beatles from their excellent early rave-up days to their overrated studio schmaltz decline, changing from black and white to vibrant color and recreating almost slavishly even the style and state of preservation of each of these historical items. As a clearly loving pastiche of the band, it's actually top tier and far more dead-on than any biopic or film take on such since. But as a comic satire, it's pretty bad. I mean, think Spinal Tap but less an indictment of hard rock and 70s proto-metal than an obsessive recreation of one band and everything they ever did, musically and filmically, from television appearances to recorded concert footage. They actually did mock-up songs that are nearly identical to the originals or combinations of the few songs from that same era, with altered lyrics that are intended to be funny but really aren't. It's always kind of sad when you spend the entirety of a comedy utterly po-faced, and that's what you'll get here, but... If you really love the Beatles, like I do, especially the early stuff, and already have all their TV appearances, press conferences, concert footage, and films, you really have to appreciate just how much effort went into crafting this. It's so fascinatingly dead on, you think it was the world's greatest tribute band experience. No, I agree. It, 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 it's a love-hate thing one can have with this. Belushi is in it for all of one brief scene as mercenary New York lawyer come manager Alan Klein, who took them and their Apple records for everything they had, as people know, if you know the Beatles. He pitches one bullshit mafia style spiel at the camera, then storms through the holes of his office building while staffers back against the wall terrified. Two of them emerge from his office with a chair wrapped around their head. Uh, okay? But yeah, that's it. It's, it's a fantastic pastiche. I liked it for that, but is it funny? Nah. <laughs> so, go ahead. It's not, it's not funny, but it's, it's remarkable that they pulled this off. Yes. Uh, can you say you could love something, even though it's not great? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly no, how I feel about yeah, this. Yeah, I love it. It's not great. I love it. But um, it's like, well, we'll never see anything like this again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every guy will, you know, the, remember the Pythons run PBS, uh, the heyday 73 to 70, no, 72 to 75. Mm-hmm. And then when they brought it over to uh, to the U.S., Rightfully so. And then all of a sudden, it just shot out of nowhere. Monty Python, the Holy Grail. Actually, no. And now for something completely different was first, which was a right. compilation of episodes. And then Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And then, you know, these guys just like stormed the whole world all of a sudden. And they could do no wrong, you know. And, and, and George Harrison, huge Monty Python. And he produced this, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, working with Neil Lyons from the Ponzo Band. Strange band, I you know with with Viv Stanshell. Mm-hmm. That's a strange band, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. I, mean, I don't know what that. Some people, I I got friends that love that band. I'm like, what am I listening to? <laughs> um, but 
You know, it's it's funny. They 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 pulled some guys. You know, Ricky Fatar worked with the Beach Boys. He wound up working with uh, Bonnie Raitt later. Neil Lines from that band. Michael Palin. No. Say no more. Say no more. George Harrison. Yes, that one. Uh, you mentioned Belushi, Aykroyd, Gilda Radden. You know, all the Saturday Night Live guys that were worth anything except for Chevy Chase, who nobody liked even back then. Yeah. <laughs> He was an asshole from day one. <laughs> yeah, showed up in this Paul Simon, you know. It's a thing like, I love this, but it's not great, but I love it. And I like the music. All you need is cheese. And, and that's just funny because Idol is part of the band. Those guys are actually performing this crap. Yeah. And they put out an album of it. And, you know, it's really dead on. And that's why it's not funny because as I'm watching this stuff and I'm like, Okay, they changed the lyrics, but you know it's it's cute. You can kind of intellectually appreciate it, but you're not gonna be like, "Oh, that was great!" <laughs> I was like, "Holy shit, these guys are really obsessive Beatles fans." You actually think you're watching the Beatles in a weird way, but it's not. You know, it's, it's that close. Wow, you didn't buy the single "Can't Buy Me Lunch." <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it's cute, but you know, you're they, not gonna they, be laughing out loud. They at followed it. it up with a with a uh, I think it was director video sequel. Yeah, that was much later, wasn't it? That was much later, and I saw them live at Irving Plaza. <laughs> they well, they were... did release a couple of records, so I can believe that. Yeah, there were three records, and I saw them live at Irving Plaza. Ooh, we're talking about 80, 80, between 80 and 83? Mm-hmm. Oh, it was such a great show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, screw something like Beatlemania. These guys were hardcore obsessive, and they had the outfits, and they had you know the sound down. They actually had the song structures, because if they weren't directly parroting a song like Help, or, you know, all you need is love or whatever. They they were like pastiches that were like, oh, yeah, that's a Beatles song, but it's like, well, okay, it was a couple from that era, that album. Mm -hmm. And it's dead on. It's just like the originals, except they've got stupid lyrics. (laughs) Oh, yeah, and if anybody doesn't know what the hell we're talking about, I'm sure YouTube has a couple of Ronald songs. Oh, yeah. I have a friend, a little side thing. She's not even really into music, but she used to work for an advertising firm. One time she took a picture of this uh, promo thing. It's not even a, a poster. It's like a 3D, it's three-dimensional billboard. It says to Ronald Lewis, is this like, should I keep this? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I, well, I live in Pennsylvania. I'm like, please don't throw it away. <laughs> Because, like, yo, they, they really tried to promote the Ruddles, which is the mm-hmm. weird thing about it. Yeah. This was a band that did not exist. <laughs> exactly. But they, with the movie and the live appearances, they really tried to promote the Ruddles. Go figure. If you were one of those people, like, I'm, I'd seen a bunch of tribute bands over the years, and we had seen something. I don't know if it was Beatlemania or whatever. We'd seen, like, mm. one or two bands that were like, oh, look, they're supposed to be the Beatles. They saw Beatlemania. Yeah, yeah. Forget yeah. it. I mean, okay, they may be good, they may be bad, but compared to this, they suck. These guys are dead on, and it's like the slavishness, the, the love they must have had for the Beatles to do this thing, and just go, okay, every single press conference, every time somebody said something stupid on air or whatever, or it was on you know, Sullivan or whatever it was, pieces from their movies, pieces from their concert footage that was filmed. Like, what's the one they just did, uh, Get Back or whatever the hell it was? With, oh, Get Back. Yeah, that one that was like, you know, seven hours or whatever, three parts of uh, watching them do their final Let It Be thing, the concert they did on the roof. Yeah, but they did that dead on as a recreation. That's yeah. what I'm saying. They, they got everything done. And it was like, having just seen that one, this wasn't even like going back years ago. I just saw that like, what, four months ago, five months ago? And then I'm looking at this, I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> you think of watching it again, except for, you know, the goofy humor. But I mean, geez, they really love these guys and they really did their stuff well. So as a pastiche, fantastic. 
if you're looking for it to be funny or like, oh, look, oh, Monty Python, non sequitur humor. No, not there. <laughs> so, anyway, next up was, like you said, Going South. Going South. One of only three films, all of which tanked mine, directed by Jack Nicholson, who we're going to do a show on soon. This sad precursor to Divine's absurd lust in the dust is, of all things, a, quote, Western comedy. This is a genre that really never works. And look at all those awful late-period spaghetti westerns that came in the wake of Bud Spencer and Talents Hill's Trinity films and My Name is Nobody. Unless the humor is so broad and juvenile that you wind up with the problematic and decidedly juvenile Blazing Saddles, and Nicholson's comparatively muted take filled with long silences and few actual sight gags or jokes is hardly that. Nicholson's an outlaw who's caught when his horse faints from exhaustion and he's sentenced to hang. They actually try to hang his horse, too. Ho, ho. But there's a law that commutes sentence if they marry and are sure of good behavior by any interested single woman. So he's saved by Kate Bush lookalike and Malcolm McDowell ex Mary Steenburgen. <laughs> well, he used to have a bit of a thing for her around time after time. You're right, you're, you're right about that. She looks like Kate Bush. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I used to have a thing for her around time after time. And even that blowjob scene in Parenthood nearly a decade later. She's not one of those... I don't remember that. Do you mean you have to watch Parenthood for that? Oh, God, no. Well, if you really need to, you can just forward up to the blowjob scene in the car. (laughs) Steve Morton's driving a car, and she goes down on him, and he crashes the (laughs) car. Anyway, she's not one of those desperate white trash women who pen pal and marry convicts, though. She actually wants him for free labor in her secret gold mine underneath her acre of land. (laughs) The rest of the film is the expected rom-com-style tension of will they or won't they, while his old gang gets her loaded and plies the secret of the mine out of her and he tries to take off only to be recaptured and saved by her yet again until there's an arguable happy ending. Yeah, sure, Jack. Crazy environmental pioneer Ed Begley Jr. of Stay Hungry, the Nastasia Kinski Cat People, Transylvania 65000, and Living with Ed. And, of course, we cover Stay Hungry in our Schwarzenegger show. Danny DeVito of Twins, also from the Schwarzenegger show, and Batman Returns. Christopher Lloyd of Schizoid from our Klaus Kinski show and Back to the Future. Luana Anderson of Dementia 13 and the Corman Pit and the Pendulum. Anne Ramsey from Throw Mama from the Train. And Veronica Cartwright of Alien and the Donald Sutherland Invasion of the Body Snatchers from our show on Sutherland all appear. Jack had done westerns before, but most were actually interesting existential think pieces, like Ride the Whirlwind and The Shooting. So why he sunk his time and money into writing and directing this stinker is a question for the ages. Maybe he had a thing for Steenburgen, too, and this was his way to put the make on her. He was kind of a notorious ladies' man, and may still be. Either way, it looks ugly and isn't very entertaining. Belushi's barely in it, as the goofy deputy convinced Jack Stoll's woman, who never had any interest or anything to do with the man, he's just some wacky, obsessed incel. Okay... If you read Wired, there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. Jack really wanted Belushi, who was just getting very popular at the time, to do this part. He was surprised that he was willing to do it as basically an extra. You know, it's not a big part, but he was very happy about this. Unfortunately, I guess, you know, the drugs and whatever petulance was going on, he wasn't happy. So there was a lot of issues with him and the producers, and there's a lot of back and forth. He still is in the film. He did what he did. But, yeah, I mean, they basically, they could have blackballed them over. There was very much tension behind the scenes. And Belushi himself was not happy because he did this to be with Nicholson, who he loved from Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, all that stuff. Mm. And, you know, because his part was so small, he barely interacted with the guy. So it was kind of a disappointment all around. And honestly, on film, it's a big disappointment. So what's your take? Yeah, it's not a great film. It's it's a lot worse than the Ruddles. <laughs> That's for sure. The Ruddles is great compared to this. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you just addressed, what happened? But I I could see that Belushi, who's a big fan of Jack, wants to work with Jack in the film. I'm sure they hung out. But his behavior and stuff, I'm sure th- there were issues. 
I can't recommend this film because it's terrible. You know, so, yeah. so. <laughs> so he does something better next year. Old boyfriends. Rocky's neurotically depressive Talia Shire and E. Coppola, she's Francis Ford's sister and aunt to both Sophia, and wacky Nicolas Cage, most notably of the John Frankenheimer Echo Horror Prophecy, is the most neurotic shrink since clinical lunatic Carl Jung. She's going through a midlife crisis in her 30s, so she leaves her practice and husband to drive cross-country to fuck all of her exes. Seriously, that is the plot. I'm waiting still. <laughs> The first thing she runs into is her college boyfriend, Colorado campaign ad director Richard Jordan of the Yakuza from our Robert Mitchum show, who she fucks and goes shortly thereafter, only to have him hire Buck Henry, private dick, to tailor for the rest of the movie. Beg me. Beg me to let you put the tip in. Tell me you want to come inside. Come on. Call me a cock teaser. She drives off to Minnesota where she scams high school boyfriend, clothier, and lounge club band leader Belushi into hand-delivering her an outfit. And in the only scene in history where you might think, hmm, that Talia Sharp might not be so bad after all, she answers the door in a slinky red number. Nice, even on her. She accompanies Belushi to a nearly empty dinner club and later a high school gym where he does his schmaltziest lounge lizard version of 50s rock and doo-wop to a handful of disinterested folks, reminiscing this bit of jaw-dropping dialogue. It was the worst night of my life. He told all the guys at school I went all the way. I can't believe I ever let him touch me. We were at Lookout Park and he ripped off my underpants. I threw my ring at him and ran away. And she's back here in a heart-bedecked choker looking to fuck him after that? Come on, what are you fighting it for? We both know what we want. Still playing hard to get, huh? Well, some people never change. You haven't. But just when it looks like she's got negative numbers in the self-respect charts, she sets him up with a reenactment of their high school disaster, only to drive off and leave him in the woods sans pants. Yeah, that's the way to show him. Then she heads out to a hick town to fuck her grammar school boyfriend, but he died in Vietnam, so she fucks his little brother, the one Caradine who never made a decent film or show, Keith. And not only is he a seriously weird-looking fuck, but he's all kinds of messed up from losing his older brother. So he winds up in the nut house, and our supposed shrink gets laid into by Caradine shrink, John Houseman of The Fog, St. Ives, and Ghost Story, the first two covered in our John Carpenter, Charles Bronson, and Jackie Bissett shows, about her unprofessional and rather twisted behavior throughout the entirety of this movie. She heads home, Jordan is still stalking her, and she decides to keep fucking him to hell with her hubby. Roll credits. Wow. What a fucked up screenplay. The sheer magnitude of destructive and self-destructive behavior Shire's lead character engages in here, not to mention her egregious and ongoing violations of professional APA ethics, are absolutely astonishing. And it's supposed to be some sort of happy ending, particularly given the music that accompanies this closing sequence? Scored hilariously inappropriately by her husband David, check out that bombastic horror film opening during the credits. You expect everyone to get massacred by monsters, a slasher, or at least a Hitchcock swipe a la Brian De Palmer, not a maudlin melodrama. This one was written and directed by frequent Robert Altman screenwriter Joan Tewksbury, both her first and only notable directorial credit unless you're a fan of the Felicity TV series. Unless you're similarly gobsmacked by just how screwed up 70s feminism could be, it's a very typical 70s soapy melodrama, the sort housewives used to indulge in on afternoon TV after stuff like Ryan's Song and the Allie McGraw love story made such a big splash in the dawn of the decade. Belushi doesn't exactly stretch as a character here, but he certainly embodies this sort of jock shithead very well. Oh, it's a very strange film. You know, it's yeah. Talia, or Talia, you know, the Rocky film, she had a career, you know, and she married David Shire, the composer, and, you know, composers have to score the film based on what they're viewing, so they have to watch the dailies, they have to watch the assembled, it must have been hard. <laughs> And, you know, it was written by Paul and Leonard Schrader. 
just directed by Joan Tewksbury. So you'd think like it would have a feminist slant, or we assume it would have a feminist slant on things. But you're right. There's some strange stuff. This is why this film hasn't shown up <laughs> in decades, you know, in, in, uh, in new versions, you know. Um, I don't know. I saw this, and I'm like, wow. What a messed up movie. But you know what? Sometimes women who were hypersexualized and entered all these different relationships and then weren't sure what they really wanted ended up going for what they had because they know what they really wanted. Just like they fucked it up. A very strange movie. Um, I don't know what to say about it. Belushi's doing a riff on a familiar thing, but he's also not terrible in it. He's- so anyway... 1979, 1941, there's a war on, pal. I want to know why you're not in uniform, because I don't take orders from anybody. Midwest beloved Hallmark card-friendly hack, Steven Spielberg, is at it again, proving that Joe's was a fluke and he a one-trick pony par excellence with this terrible World War II, quote, comedy, scripted by 80s big-name Robert Zemeckis, who go on to equally populous but far more entertaining films like the Back to the Future trilogy, Romancing the Stone, and Death Becomes Her. This isn't the state of California, it's the state of insanity. Just listen to this cast who phoned it in for the money. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi from Saturday Night Live. John Candy and Joe Flaherty of STTV. Ned Beatty from Deliverance of our Burt Reynolds show and the Superman films. Eddie Deason of Laser Blast, Hollywood Boulevard 2 with Ginger Lynn, Assault of the Killer Bimbos and a Polish Vampire in Burbank. Hammer Dracula, Christopher Lee from our Hammer and Jess Franco shows. Evita herself, Patti Lapone, Penny Marshall, Laverne and director of Jumpin' Jack Flash from our Whoopi Goldberg show. Warren Oates of Race with the Devil from our Peter Fonda and Satan in the 70s shows, Tulane Blacktop, Drum from our Blaxploitation show, and 92 in the Shade also from our Peter Fonda show, Lionel Stander of Cul-de-Sac from our Roman Polanski and Jackie Bissett shows, Dub Taylor of The Getaway from our Steve McQueen show, and Burn Offerings from our Dan Curtis and Oliver Reed shows, Slim Pickens of The Swarm from our Michael Caine show, Nancy Allen of Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill and Blowout, Robert Stack of Unsolved Mysteries and Airplane, Lorraine Gary of Jaws 1, 2, and 4, the latter from our Michael Caine show. Tashiro fucking Mafune of Shogun, The Bushido Blade, Seven Samurai, Rashomon, Samurai 1 to 3, Yojimbo, Incident of Blood Pass, and Red Sun from our Charles Bronson show. And it's Mickey Rourke's first film. I don't like you. I don't like the way you act, and I especially don't like your immature sexual innuendos. In a cheap callback to his lone film success, Spielberg opens on a girl stripping down for a late night swim, complete with Jaws music. But it's not a killer shark, it's a Japanese subsurfacing, and she's hugging the periscope. Cue Tashiro Mifune, strangely unembarrassed by appearing in this terrible American comedy stinker, as the captain, who decides to bomb Hollywood rather than a military base or such like. Oh ho ho. You ain't getting shit out of me. I've been constipated all week, and there ain't a damn thing you can do about it. Slim Pickens is a Christmas tree selling lumberjack and a crappy old pickup who Mifune and company kidnapped because his name is Hollis Wood. When they get excited about a Cracker Jack toy surprise compass, he swallows it, and they try to force him to shit it out. There's a long, long bit about this, just so you know where the humor level is at here. A shitload, pun very much intended, of similarly asinine side plots include Nancy Allen as a woman who gets wet over military aircraft, Deason as a civilian watch guy who won't go anywhere without his ventriloquist dummy, and Belushi as a crazy Air Force captain who serves as a sub-Marx Brothers force of anarchy and destructive chaos throughout. Turn this tub around. You're taking me to Tokyo. 
In the end, Alan tries to fuck a soldier while they're flying. They're mistaken for a Japanese Zero for some reason and get shot down by Belushi, who in turn gets shot down for the exact same reason by Deezen in a carnival Ferris wheel. Much destruction ensues, and a post-crash Belushi manages to discover Mifune's sub, get captured, and somehow think he's going to single-handedly take out Japan. The only question here is just how much blow was being passed around the boardroom when they greenlighted this overbudgeted piece of shit, and how much was passed around the decidedly large-name cast thereafter. There is simply no way any rational-minded person would put something this stupid, unfunny, and expensive out otherwise. Spielberg, the one-man abomination of desolation usurping the holy temple of cinema, would of course go on to deliver much, much worse shit than this, but it's an Ishtar-slash-Heavens-Gate-level bomb on a level he'd never be allowed to attempt again. Belushi is exactly what he was on SNL, a croak-crazed madman mugging for the camera and throwing himself into a small role with abandon. It's terrible, but by Spielberg standards, it's practically Oscar-worthy. You are a sick fuck. Uh, <laughs> you hate Spielberg. What, what did he ever I do? do? Yeah, I know. Like, what did he ever do to you, man? I mean, not personally. It's, it's not like Spike Lee here. No, no. It's <laughs> like, I know you hate Spike personally. Be careful about that. To be a... Asshole. Hello? <laughs> look of... No. That's right. <laughs> He's in the fruit of Islam after me. <laughs> He's like, we don't have any fruit here, motherfucker. So, but yeah, I like Spielberg. But what was uh, Julia Phillips? Julia Phillips, who co-produced this and Close Encounters and other things, she wrote this great book about being completely out of her head and coked all the time. And it was a it was a really rough book about drug addiction and being a Hollywood executive. <laughs> And she talked about this movie, you know, at length and how, like, everybody was fucked up. And it's like, how did this thing get made? <laughs> Yo, this this is like bizarre. And you know there's a long version of this out there? Oh, my God, even longer than this? Because that's why uh, it was, like, two and a half hours or something. This is like, oh, yeah, the director's cut is, like, almost three hours. <laughs> at 146 minutes, it's two hours and 20, almost two, two and a half hours. And it's like, it's not any better. <laughs> And and it's it's just bizarre, and it's almost like somebody saw Animal House and said, "Hey, that was really successful. Get some of the guys from Animal House." And like John Belushi's really popular from the TV show, and yeah, get the girl from Jaws, okay. <laughs> and I, I saw Deliverance, but that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, get him too. <laughs> and then it was like the guy, that guy from those Japanese movies, you know, the sword fighting movies. Yeah, bring him in. <laughs> And then, like, John Candy's starting to become a popular comedian. Like, who's that fat fuck? All right, get him, too. And Christopher Lee. Yeah, Christopher Lee is like, well, Christopher Lee. <laughs> and then Robert Stack, somebody probably watched the Untouchables reruns and said, get that guy. That's right, we want Elliot Ness. <laughs> you want Elliot Ness? And then Slim Pickens, somebody probably watched Dr. Strangelove one night and said, hey, get him. Yep. <laughs> and... and <laughs> Not a very memorable book. I wish I could remember the title, but if you Google it, Julie Phillips, it was, it was a really hard book to read because it was like the coke was flying so high. And it was just like Scarface, but for real. <laughs> With all these executives. You know, I, I can sure the, I'm not going to say names, you know, but I'm sure the execs were just absolutely bizarre. You know, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, you know, this thing was a certain theater. Wow. Because I, I like Spielberg, and I said, well, the cast will draw you in. Oh, for sure, it's a big cast. And I'm like, what is this? You know, it's just like, I don't get this. Yeah, exactly. That's a... And I remember a couple of years later, I tried to rent out the VH. You know, sometimes 
mood swing or something or you're not feeling it, you know, it's on VHS, you can go rent it out again. And then we get a second shot. I was like, same thing. I was like, what is this? Yep. <laughs> exactly. I've done that with a lot of these things. I've seen them many times over the years. It's, okay, let me try it now. Do I feel any different about this? Because I like other no, films. He's no. in Nope, still the same piece of shit. <laughs> and what you were saying about how, like, I just don't get this. Why is this, why is this popular? Is exactly how I feel about everything we've discussed thus far. Although I didn't mind old boyfriends for a couple of reasons, but you know it's a fucking mess. So here's where it starts to get good. So yeah, anything yeah. else you gonna say about that one? No, it's, it's a, but, but I do like Spielberg. So 1980, The Blues Brothers. Yeah. Strangely enough, the next film had origins going back to Dan Aykroyd's youth in Ottawa. Apparently in the very early 70s, Aykroyd used to haunt a local blues club to the point where he actually played drums with a local house band, Downchild, who had a few records out. At one point, backing up Muddy Waters when he played there. When Aykroyd was doing Saturday Night Live, he also ran a Manhattan blues bar of his own where cast and weekly guests used to hang out after tapings, and he got his pal Belushi into the blues big time through this, and he eventually started joining a local blues guitarist on stage to sing old blues songs at gigs. At one point, the two came up with an improv bit for the show where they ate members of Aykroyd's old band-slash-jam partners fairly directly and even swiped some of their old songs. After the aforementioned skit, complete with their patented odd dancing and Belushi's cartwheels, they managed to put together a full band that went beyond the Paul Schaefer Saturday Night Live group to include seasoned vets who played with Booker T and the MGs, Howlin' Wolf, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Isaac Hayes, and the Bar Kays, and started opening for Saturday Night Live regulars like Steve Martin, and even recording a few live albums of their own. The liner notes they wrote built a fictional mythology that wound up becoming the basis for the film. I think actually Judy Belushi wrote a lot of those liner notes. The film was directed by Animal House's John Landis, who go on to work with Eddie Murphy, who did a show on, for both Trading Places and Coming to America, and Sylvester Stallone, who we also did a show on for Oscar, and was scripted by Aykroyd, who also wrote Belushi into his original script for Ghostbusters before John died. Essentially, Jake and Elwood are ex-con blues men who have a soft spot for the nasty nun who ran the orphanage they grew up in. As much like the later Sister Act, the Catholic Church is about to close the place down due to lack of patronage and therefore funding. They also big back taxes besides. They decide during a visit to one of those Holy Roller Black Baptist churches where people faint and roll around the aisles caught up in the pumping gospel music, I actually sat in a jam with a few services with one of those in a local urban area in the early to mid-90s, where James Brown is the preacher, mind, that they're going to save, quote, the Penguin by getting their old band back together and raising the needed cash by performing. Without telling the band they aren't getting paid, and with a lot of burned bridges, life changes, and bad blood to contend with. If that weren't enough, they wound up being pursued by Belushi's crazy ex, Princess Lamy herself, Carrie Fisher, who's trying to kill him, a bunch of MAGA, or what they used to call neo-Nazis, who they broke up a traffic-stopping demonstration of an embarrassing, led by Henry Gibson, a country band who they stole a gig from when they suckered the bar owner into thinking that they were, as a quick cash-grabbing band morale boost, and the cops who were after them for a ridiculous amount of unpaid parking tickets and traffic violations, who they drove straight through a crowded indoor mall to escape. Along the way, they run into Aretha Franklin as the soul food hash-slinger wife of one of the band, John Lee Hooker, Ray Charles, and even Cab Calloway, not to mention cameos from Twiggy, Chaka Khan, Pee Wee Herman, Joe Walsh, Steven Spielberg, John Candy, and Henry Gibson, as I mentioned, as the head Nazi. It's a sprawling movie, but loads of fun and filled with good 60s-style soul and R&B, and a lot of big-name musicians. It's much beloved for a reason, and some bits are incessantly quotable. Just mention Stand By Your Man and Rawhide, the folks of a certain age, and watch them start quoting lines and singing along. And... I hate Illinois Nazis has never been so apropos, nor their various kicks in the ass and final fate so viscerally satisfying as in these days of fascist politics taking over the entirety of the by far sneakier, more strategic, and dirtier of the two political parties running this nation into the ground here in 2022. It was loads of fun back in 1980, and it holds up surprisingly well still, 42 years later. Both Belushi and Accurate are great here, but as usual, it's Belushi who really steals the show. 
I'm on a mission from God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it's 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 terrific. It's terrific. And uh, yeah, I mean, you you mentioned all all the cool stuff about this movie, pretty much. Before I got to say a m- word, but <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know you got a, a cavalcade of familiar faces and blues artists and R and B artists, and the music's good. The yeah. music is good, and you're not making fun of it. They're actually you know, Belushi and Aykroyd really feel it. And and it's funny to see these these two <laughs> these two guys, you know, with the sunglasses at night and the, the, the pork pie hats and the, the the dark suits like they just got out of jail and one did. <laughs> you know, just like try to pull this off and it's weird, it's sweet and it's it's bizarre enough to it actually work. Allegedly John Belushi was having a really good time off offset, but I think uh, whether it was uh, Landis, Aykroyd, or a combination of the two kept him even keel enough to actually pull off the film until they finished it. it. It's a it's a great terrific movie if you love, especially if you love the blues. It's it's a I always thought it was a very charming acknowledgement in a way because you know back in the seventies a lot of British uh, an American artist used to go over and to uh, the South and they used to play with the blues guys. Then they managed to bring the blues guys to the UK and to America yeah. and they played with them. And, and That's where the British invasion basically was. A lot of it was blues-based. Right. The Yardbirds, the Stones. Right. And in a way, this movie, in a fantastical kind of way, is kind of acknowledging that. It's like, we're going we're gonna to bring these guys to you now, mm-hmm. 1980. It's it's a great John Landis movie. He did quite a few really good pictures. The cast is terrific. There's that wonderful scene where <laughs> Carrie Fisher already exhibiting signs of like what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, she's gonna blow him away in the sewer, and he takes off his sunglasses and he goes, "Babe, babe, it's me." So she lowers the gun. We just fuck him with her. <laughs> yeah, it's a great film. It's a great film. Yeah, and you know, don't let it turn you off because you think I ah, have blues, and I'll be all like, you know, Johnny Hooker who's in it, that kind of thing. You know, an old guy sitting there playing the harmonica or whatever. No, this is more. I mean, yeah, the blues are there, but it's a lot of like high energy soul music, and yeah, like I said, James right, Brown, Aretha Franklin, those are not names you associate with the blues. These people are in there, Ray Charles. I mean, you know, it's it's good music. I mean, my wife doesn't even like Belushi and this kind of stuff, but she loves that old soul music, and because I play her a lot of that stuff, a lot of old funk and soul. And this is full of that stuff. I mean, and you think it's a joke because, okay, it's John Belushi, it's Dan Aykroyd. No, they had this shtick that was, like, really cool. Honestly, I mean, like, I, I like this. I would like to have seen them. Where, you know, they come out there and Aykroyd's got, like, a, a briefcase with him and he's handcuffed to it. And Bel- Full of harmonica. Yeah, yeah, Belushi goes over and unlocks the keys and he opens up and there's a harmonica inside and he's just playing. You know, I wouldn't say, like, Belushi's a great singer, but he certainly pulls it off doing all this crazy acrobatic stuff. Acro's dancing around like a jittery, uh, kind of like Joy Division <laughs> in a weird way. Yeah, because the, su- the suitcase had harmonicas in different keys. Yes, yeah. You know, like A, C, D, E, you know, uh, F, G, um, E. Yeah, he, he did a sequel in 2000, The Blues Brothers 2000, which I have to, John was well gone by then, many years later. But I have to say, it's pretty, it's pretty damn decent. For a sequel, uh, a lot of people didn't like it because, like, John Belushi's not it; he's dead man. How could he be? <laughs> you do Crouch's Ghost? <laughs> yeah, with the gym was it? 
Yes, you're right. Jim Belushi was there, but that's a different story. It's a different story, but it's actually not bad, you know, coming from me. And, and didn't uh, he use John Goodman or something? John Goodman. John Goodman yeah. was like a third wheel because they, they knew Jim wasn't up to some things. And John Goodman was this bartender who was very talented. He's a very talented guy. John Goodman's very talented. Yes. And they, they kind of squeezed him into that. And uh, who's the other guy? Oh, Joe Morton, the black actor. And, you know, he, he was trailing them most of the movie as the cop. You know, sort of like Blues Brothers, you know, there's a cop trailing up from Chicago, and he's, like, doing the same thing. Except they get to the point, like, you're going to join the band. I don't want to be in your band. You're going to join the band. So that's a fun movie. So I recommend that to you guys. Continental Divide is next. Yeah, Continental Divide. Today you've gone too far. Stuff that could get an innocent person killed. Would you be offended if I asked you to buy your papers at O'Leary's for a while? I'll pay for them. Oddly produced by Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, this film was scripted by Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Body Heat's Lawrence Kasdan, and directed by The World Is Not Enough's Michael Apted from our trio of James Bond shows. This sort of rom-com features Belushi's lone, truly dramatic role, and it's a damn good one. In fact, this one is very probably his best film. A rough-edged, old-fashioned Chicago reporter on the crime beat, even the local gangbangers and muggers know and respect him enough to give him back his wallet and watch after they pull knives on him in a back alley. But when he goes after a corrupt local politician, he finds himself beat up and hospitalized by cops who show up ostensibly to save him from said muggers. Sounds a hell of a lot like my literal mob third experience with a certain city court, particularly when the DA, mayor, and cops are all related and in cahoots. Don't believe they're on your side, people, because they're not. So, to save his sorry ass from winding up dead over a story, his boss, Alan Garfield of Busting from our Elliot Gould show, and whose first film credit was the promising-sounding Orgy Girls 1969, it's actually Orgy Girls 69, which is even more suggestive, sends Belushi on a story well out of town to interview a Margaret Mead type working to protect bald eagles on the Colorado Rockies. She likes reporter fellows least of all. He almost killed one. What do you mean almost killed? Well, you know, when you stop breathing, walking, and seeing things, that kind of almost killed. Red-headed drama queen, literally soapy melodramas for a forte, Blair Brown of indulgent Paul Simon semi-biopic One Trick Pony, and one of my all-time favorite films, Altered States, from our Ken Russell show, is The Environmentalist in Question, and the rest of the film is a mix of -of fish-out-of-water humor and rom-com business between the initially belligerent Sundaray Blair and city boy Belushi, who she discovers sleeping by her cabin fireplace, waking him at the edge of a spear. Reporters are parasites. They feed off the accomplishments of other people. You think I like it here? I want to stay here only marginally that I want to die trying to escape. Belushi struggles to adapt to backwoods life, even getting mauled by a cougar and fending off a crazed hippie mountain man type along the way over the two weeks he's out there on assignment. But he finds when he finally does return to the city, he's still got a major flame for her, to the point of losing all focus and ability to hack his old job. How's the patient? In my book, technically dead. He hasn't written a word since he got back. She's got a lot to answer for. I could kill her for years. I try to fix him up with a nice girl, and he's got to go and fall for an eagle freak. Careful on your way out. There's a zombie out there. Oh, my God. She must be one hell of a mountain goat. Well, he does eventually manage to turn things around and get back to his old self long enough to break the story and false the politician to abandon his position and run off to another country, it's more important to him that he reconnect with Brown during her lecture tour stop there. And the mountain rises higher and higher, thrusting upward, ever upward, burgeoning its power from the very loins of the earth, its peak piercing at least the center of the sun, till its golden, molten, melting light explodes in it. Am I right in thinking there's something you're trying to tell us here? The undulating hillocks, round and smooth and full and fertile, sloping groves curling gently down to the... I mean, what do you suggest we rent this? Penthouse? Of course, they finally give in and decide to get hitched, which you have to question the viability of as she's determined to remain in the mountains, and he's still planning to stay on his beat in the city. I understand they have a very dramatic way of making love. 
Yes, they first they chase each other, circling, dipping, twisting, screaming, testing. Then they come together, their talons locking. Inseparable? For a short, very happy time, yes. Can they fly that way? No, not together. They begin to fall, plunging and tumbling down and down. Sounds dangerous, but thrilling. And then when they're very near the ground, they separate, open their wings, and soar on the air currents. Alone? That's the only way they can fly. And that's all there is. Unless they do it again. Blair alternates between sort of tomboyishly butch and pretty damn attracted by the scene and outfit, or lack thereof. She has a nice if demure sour scene in a ponytail early on, though. She even jumps his bones with her pants on, but is very comfortable with this sort of territory. And Belushi is surprisingly good here, delivering a nice mix of comic insouciance and straightforward dramatic that he never really displayed or got the opportunity to in his earlier work. To live in Chicago, you have to learn that you only survive by understanding your opponents. Never touch anyone in the street. They'll think you need help, and they'll kill you. Never cross anyone on the street when you hear an ambulance. It's very dangerous because it's trying to run you down. Never carry any money in your purse. Keep it in your shoe. You can always tell how rich a person is by the way he limps. And for God's sakes, never smile at anyone. They'll think you're gay. In which case, don't call the cops. They'll book you for an obscene phone call. It's cute stuff in the end and has some definite bite to its humor, but ultimately this one is nowhere near as soft-edged as what we've come to expect from the rom-com genre. It's definitely one of a kind. Like the next film, it's probably not a favorite of fans of his slovenly frat boy and coked-up physical comedy shticks, but these two films, and to a lesser extent the enjoyable Blues Brothers, are the reason I thought he was worth devoting a show to, particularly for those who weren't aware that he was a lot more capable than his more popular work would ever make you think. What's your take? You exhausted me, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love this fucking film. Very goodness. Unfortunately, the box office was a disaster on this because... Yeah. People expected a John Belushi that they had seen from Animal House and maybe to an extent Blues Brothers. And that's not what they got here. And mm-hmm. and I think it affected him. From what I understand, he kind of eased up a little bit on some of the excessive stuff to do this performance. And uh, he turned in a really good, straight, dramatic performance for the most part. And who would have thought? Romantic comedy drama. And yeah, Blair Brown was very popular at the time. And, you know, good supporting cast, familiar faces. And it just, it was box office poison because nobody wanted to see that. Yeah. They wanted to see John Belushi bouncing off of places, doing stupid stuff. And and here he was turning in a, a believable rom-com thing and dramatic role at the same time. I was like, right, yeah, hell? but that's just not what they wanted. Right, exactly. Which, which is a shame because he only had one more picture in him. Yeah. So 1981 is Neighbors, which was actually his final film. He tried to pork me. Pork you? I never touched you. I wasn't born with your hand in my bush. Anyone who's ever owned a house or worse, living in a condo or apartment building will either find this one hilarious or horrifying in its comedically exaggerated truth. Robert Frost once penned, Good fences make good neighbors, and Sartre even more accurately wrote The Hells of the People as the denouement an entire point of no exit. And the undeniable truth of these cynical aphorisms only grows more true over the years as society continues to decline into Lovecraftian levels of Neanderthalism and satanic atavism in individuals, groups, and institutions alike. Since the dawn of the millennium, jingoism, hate groups, and domestic terrorism from the once extreme far but now considered mainstream right have pushed the bar ever further into degeneracy. And in all honesty, there are many on the other side whose ivory tower delusions and me-first sensibilities have sadly begun to sour those with a modicum of rationality on much of their otherwise inclusive and empathetic People Over Profits platform as well. While it's ever more clear who the evildoers are, and the bottom line is that across the board, selfishness is bringing down the entirety of Western civilization, crushing every bit of human aspiration and achievement in its wake. But keep in mind, this is a comedy, albeit an absurdist, if not somewhat surrealistic, black comedy and satire of middle American values. So as dark as it gets, there's a more promising ending of sorts. What did you say? I said blow it out your ass, wimp. Is somebody else on this line? Just you and me, asshole. 
The film centers on a boring suburban couple, Belushi and TV soap opera actress Catherine Walker, whose lives are upended by a pair of wild lunatic scam artists who move in next door and immediately ingratiate themselves to their new neighbors, turning the world upside down in the process. I'll give you a kiss anywhere you want. Look, you've got no interest in me. Why are you coming on to me like this? The wife, a smoking hot Jessica Rabbit slash Veronica Lake-worthy Kathy Moriarty of Kindergarten Cop and Soap Dish from our Schwarzenegger and Whoopi Goldberg shows, comes down to Belushi with gusto when the wife's out of the room, even slinking under his bed covers. The husband, Ackroyd, is a testosterone-driven used car salesman of a con artist who lies like a rug, steals money for dinner and pockets it, making a substandard one himself. Left and right, they gaslight and take advantage of the stiff, somewhat meek Belushi, while never leaving enough evidence behind for him to convince wife Walker or edible underwear-sporting punk rock daughter, slasher star Lauren Marie Taylor of Friday the 13th Part 2, and the killer in a bear suit epic Girls' Night Out of the truth, until they literally ruin his entire safe suburban world, burning down both houses and convincing a now-liberated Belushi of the lyrics to me and Bobby McGee, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, and ain't that the truth for those who've been there. Directed by the decidedly non-comedy man John Avildsen, Rocky 1 and 5, and all three Karate Kid films, plus the Dark Shadows alumni heavy drama Save the Tiger with Lara Parker and Thayer David, this final film from Belushi always came off rather odd, and it's not just because of his drama-inclined director. There were a number of problems on this one, starting with the fascinating choice of swapping Belushi and Aykroyd's roles. Aykroyd, for his part, comes off much like he did in films like Dragnet, Canadian Bacon, or The Blues Brothers, save for his character's positioning as the force of anarchic destruction to suburbanite values and comfort. He's well cast, but it's just Aykroyd being a bit more nasty and unbalanced than usual rather than some major shift. Belushi, on the other hand, takes the tack he was developing in Continental Divide and stiffens it considerably, taking the rough-edged crime beat reporter and making him, quote, respectable and very rigid and conservative. The film is clearly mocking the character, but Belushi plays it shockingly straight, without a tongue-in-cheek or raised eyebrow in sight. I always thought it was a good movie, and it's these last three films that I always enjoyed and respect to Belushi for, not his early coke-crazed slapstick shtick, where he always came off like a James Corden on bath salts, or the disgusting slob of Tarzoon Animal House and to an extent 1941. But especially at the time, everyone was taken very much aback. It was far from being considered a bomb, but it was an oddity that people weren't sure how to take. It was just too dark, too mean-spirited, and played more for serious satire than mugging for drunken belly laughs. Understanding how bad a choice of director Avildsen was for this, both Belushi and Aykroyd lobbied the studio to have him removed unsuccessfully, and the screenwriter fought with the production over Aykroyd's changes to his script, not to mention Belushi's increasing drug issues messing with the filming and schedule. Belushi also, as mentioned earlier, was championing Lee Bing's deliberately controversial and reactionary fear, who, much like Friedkin with the germs and cruising, but with even worse results, he tried to unsuccessfully get them in the film and its soundtrack. As consolation, he lobbied to get them on Saturday Night Live, where they got the show in hot water with not only their lyrics, but the boisterous punk audience they brought with them, like I said earlier. In all, it's a weird film, but by the standards of late 70s and 80s comedies, not to mention the performances of the three most prominent leads, it's actually rather good. I always liked this one, though it is really, really dark, as absurd as comedies go. And again, taken in conjunction with the fun, music star-studded, and perennially quotable Blues Brothers and the one-two knockout punch of Continental Divide, his final trio of films proved that John Belushi was much, much better than you'd ever have thought from his cartwheel-spinning, manic-shouting, and almost Robin Williams-esque weird voices and mugging, not to mention disgusting, slovenly frat boy shtick of his earlier work would ever have led anyone to expect. And it's these films almost exclusively, alongside decades of ongoing praise and emulation by the stand-up comedian and man you guys likely only know as my Ed I level co-host, that led me to suggest him for cover. It's clear that Belushi has so much more to offer and a lot more depth than his more famed offerings would suggest. So, what's your take? Yeesh. I was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange black comedy film. Uh, well, black comedy or just a black film? It's uh, 
Yeah, it's very dark. It's very dark, and that they switch roles is one thing. I think Continental Divide may have been his best movie as a dramatic actor, if we could say that. And I think Neighbors following that really just like, you know. Confused everybody. Confused everybody. It's just like, not so much box office poison, but it's like, you know, these movies still made money, but people are expecting the John Belushi bouncing off the walls, doing this, doing that, Pratt Falls, and it's not what they were getting. And uh, although he maybe it was the experience of Continental Divide or the uh, reaction to that, you start doing the drugs again heavier, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where him allegedly him and Aykroyd were like, we're going to direct this. And like, no, no, <laughs> it was John G. Avildsen like nearly won Oscars or did win Oscars for Rocky. So you're not directing shit. So, right. you know, it's a strange movie, like to even be greenlit. During that time period, you know, Kathy Mariotti, I could see she was very strange and raging bull. <laughs> terrific, terrific performance in that. And it's an odd film. It's just an odd, dark film. It's almost almost in a way you would think it would be a Twilight Zone episode. You know, in a way. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. And 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 uh, it's darker than something like Death Becomes Her. So imagine that. Yeah, it's, it's darker <laughs> than Death Becomes Her. Yeah, exactly. So. so Go ahead. No, go ahead. You finish. That was it, pretty much, after that. So on March 4th, 1982, Belushi, who had been staying at a private bungalow at the Chateau Marmont, got a visit from Robert De Niro, who had planned on inviting John out bar hopping or clubbing. Apparently, the room was trashed, not only filthy with clothes and empty pizza boxes and wine bottles everywhere, but a huge pile of blow on the table. He apparently left after seeing the state of the place, but wasn't so repulsed that he didn't come back around 3 in the morning to share a few bumps of that blow. Apparently, the late Robin Williams also dropped by for a few hits of the sniffy, but both were weirded out and left afterwards. The girl who supplied the stash was still there in the morning and ordered room service, and apparently John was still alive, snoring away. By the time Belushi's bodyguard came knocking at noon, the apartment was empty and Belushi was dead, and we went into the rest of the start of the show. Belushi was very obviously one of those comedians like Williams, Bob Goldthwaite, Sam Kinison, and Chris Farley, whose entire shticks were based on their drug-crazed persona, surprisingly physical and manic all over the damn place rather than the expected static stand-up-style joke-slinging and wry verbal humor. It's the surprise of it, almost like shock comedy, that leaves audiences laughing with these types, and obviously even limiting this to the aforementioned list, most of their lives were cut rather short by the indulgences that drove their onstage and screen performances. Hold on a second. Sure. Bobcat Goldthwaite is still alive. Yes, he is. I mentioned that. Okay, okay. All right, Um, sorry. But Belushi, unlike all the others, perhaps save the disturbing and disturbed Williams, who could pull off a creepy-ass role like he did in one of his last films, One Hour Photo, had a lot more depth to him, or at least could, to judge by his final roles in Neighbors, where he demanded switching the straight man while Acura take his expected anarchic role, and especially the fairly nuanced and sympathetic crime-beat reporter Suchak in Continental Divide. And as those films, alongside the ever-quotable and entertaining Blues Brothers, that led to my suggestion for the show, like I said earlier. And again, Matt, this one's for you, as a lifelong big fan of the guy and replicator of at least certain elements of his shtick. Your champion of his work, especially his later stuff, led me to reassess Belushi many years back. So, salute the amico mia. So, uh, is there anything else you want to close out with? No, no. It's a shorter show than usual for us, and we hope you enjoyed listening to it. I think next on the docket would be Richard Benjamin. Yes, that's correct. And then we'll be doing Jamie Lee Curtis after that. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah, so... All right, so uh, we will see you next time for Richard Benjamin. Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed a little drawing room chat on John Belushi. And like I said, next time, Richard Benjamin. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, or musician, you'd like to join us in air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. 
Uh, we're also on Twitter at WeirdScenes1. <laughs> Although, you know, I don't know how long we want to stay there with Elon Musk, but anyway, we're, we're there now. And we're also on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes. Uh, you can look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you're a particular, it's ID 5534020044. We're also on Spotify and Amazon Podcasts. Again, just look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. And Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network. Now, you're going to have to come up with a scroll. Nobody's going to listen. His scroll is up. <laughs> I can't help it. We're everywhere, folks. We're everywhere. These places I don't even mention. <laughs> Throw it out there. Yeah, it's a good deal. Look it up. There you Hopefully. go. <laughs> so, all right. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back shortly. Yes. At 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. 
Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, good, 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 good. Just trying a different kind of mix here so it's not so boomy. Oh, on this side, so far, it sounds fine. So. Oh, that's good. <laughs> So what's up? How was your event? Oh, Jiller? Yeah. Um, good to see some people. Uh, sad to see some people didn't make it through COVID, and, Oof, um, yeah. which I knew. And some people just didn't show up, you know, as far as people I knew. Yeah. Some people asked. I said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you know, some people I just don't keep in contact anymore. And some people mysteriously from staff weren't there. And, you know, again, I don't know. You know, it's. 
it's it's why sometimes if just to keep some things like I don't know and you know would you ask and if people evade your query you just go like okay you know <laughs> yeah um, Ace Freely from Kiss who's been there before did amazingly well I don't know what they're gonna do because so he was there before and he he did very well but this time his line was insane <laughs> snaking down a hall right. back and forth. Outside and around. I'm like, my goodness. Maybe this figure's going to kick off soon. Who knows? I, I don't know, but they moved uh, the, the ballroom where I used to do the Q&As, that big room. They, yeah. They gave me a, a much smaller room at the end of the hallway. So on both sides of the hall, you have these guest signing rooms and then Ace Freely. Mm. And I was trying, you know, I asked, you know, the night before, like, how do I get the guests into this room without going to the crowd? Oh, you can go in and go out, but you can't because it's exit only in one of these things. Oh. So um, I saw the people from Creepshow. Some knew, some didn't. It's okay. We got sorted out. And the guys from in New Jersey were kind of excited. They're, they're, they're really fun, cool guys. Yeah. And everybody said, can you come get me? I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I didn't have a helper this time. So I said, I'll come get you. So I went to get the Saturday. I went to get the Creepshow people. And the only one there at, in that room was Galen from Dawn of the Dead. I said, where are they? I think they went. Oh, okay. Can you wait 15 minutes for me? I'm like, I can't. That's supposed to be now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go in the stall. I gave, I with a highlighter, I drew a diagram on the program. Is here's how you get there. I'm sorry. You know? Yeah. So she showed up five minutes and she goes, oh, they're not here. I said, it's okay. I'm thinking you did Dawn of the Dead. I could do an hour with you. you know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Also, she's a documentary filmmaker, won awards. She did documentaries on the uh, uprising in Beijing. Okay. On the Chinese turnover. She did documentary on mail-order housewives from Russia. I'm like, you are really interesting. She did not want to discuss any of that. Really? I think she kind of evaded it because I think she wanted to keep one thing separate from the other. Oh, Okay. She didn't say that, but I, I kind of got the gist of that. And I was really impressed that this is what she's doing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. Very impressed. You know, not that, you know, just anybody who's doing that kind of work, that's really good, you know. And she won a couple of awards internationally. Anyway, so we were rolling along, and I'm like, okay, nobody's going to come. And then they all showed up <laughs> together. And I'm like, okay, okay. And it actually worked out quite well. That was the Creep Show one. And uh, I just read a day or two before that they're doing a either night or a dawn remake. But there, there was a film that was pretty popular called the nanny is an African Asian filmmaker mm -hmm. woman. Some people liked it. I haven't seen it, but apparently they it's, it's snowballing. It's actually, they're going to do this remake and she's involved. I, you know, it's tricky because she's Christine Forrest. She was married to George mm -hmm. and then he had another wife after they divorced. Right. But she had still adopts his name. So how is she the one to negotiate this? I don't know, unless maybe in his will he left rights to her. Mm. I, I'm not quite sure how that worked out. But anyway, no, like that went well. And then the weird, weird New Jersey panel went extremely well because these guys are really, they're just really good. Mm -hmm. You know, I was trying to like, you guys seen weird stuff. So, uh, you know, what's some of the strangest things you you've encountered you know and and the funny thing was the guy who did my sound and myself we realized 
Maybe because Chiller's been off the grid for a while, or maybe people are just starting to come back with a very subdued audience. The room was packed, people standing along the wall. I'm like, any questions? Nobody had any questions. <laughs> for either panel. Right. And But they were all excited that they came in. But, like, nobody wanted to say anything. Like, all right. <laughs> the other thing was going down the East Freely Hall, I said, I'm putting my mask on. Yeah. Not my Halloween mask, either. <laughs> Um, because it's just too many people. You know, just, yeah. Uh, I tested three times since I got back. I'm lucky. I survived. Hey, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yep. Uh, it was it was pretty crowded. And then there was some incident that happened on Sunday after I left. Uh-oh. I, I don't want to talk about So, uh, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, also, while I was there, I was hearing it was the last show there. Okay. The morning again? <laughs> Moving again. I don't know whether back, because I don't think they're going to want us back to the last place. Right. Or moving somewhere else. But if they go further inland, it's just going to... Yeah, because, you know, I went with Sea Caucus. I used to go there, and then I was like, Parsip was like, jeez, all right, fine. We did a couple of them because of the Italians. But after that, I was like, no, fuck this. (laughs) It's a journey. It's a journey for anyone. Yeah. You know, back pre-COVID. When my back was good, I, I would, you know, drag my shit to a bus, take the path to Hoboken, and take the train, and then from there get a car or even a cab. And, you know, it's still, train's like 15 bucks. You know, the two the bus to train's like $6. And, you know, like, where am I saving money? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But with my back, I don't want to take the chance of dragging the shit around, so I said I'd take an Uber. So pre-COVID, I took a few, and there were 25, 30 some days, to bad weather, 45, 50. I'm like, uh eh. But I know the last shows I didn't go, it's like hitting 70, 80. So I got lucky. It was like 45. I said, it's still a lot of money, but all right. I said, I would go. Yeah. They put me in the, the staff floor on six, the last floor. And they said, the only, the only and easiest way you can access this is this elevator by the massage room, which was closed, unfortunately. Right. So, <laughs> so I go down the hall. I go, okay, here's the elevator. Six. All right, make a left. There it is. Hey, that's cool. Very quiet. Yeah, I'm sure the old floors are very noisy. You know, typical. And what did they hear all night long? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? The elevator is on the other side of the, of the wall. <laughs> so wow. when, I check, when I was checking out, how was your stay? You know, typical. And I'm like, you you guys know the elevator is on the other side of that. Oh, did it bother you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could not sleep for two nights. It kept wow. waking me up every 10 minutes, 15 minutes. My my last few nights, I've been trying to catch up. <laughs> you, know, you know what interrupted sleep is like? It's a crazy thing, man. Oh, yeah. It's a crazy thing. <laughs> so I had to go into work twice this week. Um, you, you know Citrix, right? Citrix and VPN, the other thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, from one thing, I use VPN, and for the other thing, I use Citrix. My Citrix profile got corrupted. Uh-oh. And uh, so I had to go in two days this week, and they're trying to fix it, trying to fix it, and finally got it. But I'm so tired from the – because I'm not used to the commute into the Manhattan. Yeah. And and the trains and everything else is so fucked up coming back home. Like, last night I got home at 6. I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> it felt like a 20-hour day. You know, no, it wasn't. So you had to go in basically because you couldn't get into the program. Just, you know, two-factor kind of shit. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. get into the program. and But the, you can get to it on the job? 
Yes, yes. Oh, okay, because mine didn't matter. It's like, okay, well, you can't get in here, but then you're fucked up on the job, too. Not with the VPN, but with the Citrix stuff. No, with the, no, with the Citrix, they also said, well, we're killing Citrix soon anyway by December. Right. Uh, so what's the alternative? Well, you have VPN on the same thing. Well, you're not set for VPN. Oh, fuck, <laughs> I go in. Yeah, I went in. They set me up. Everything's okay. It's a different view. Yeah, of course, but uh, it's all right. So now we're back. We're back on track. <laughs> I'm so behind with on uh, on the music stuff. And uh, yeah, I start I started doing some things today during my my off time, and got to get back onto that. And oh, speaking of which, I did a shout out for both our shows to a full room of people. You know, weird scenes, and I went through the whole thing. And all those in Prague went through the whole thing. And uh, so some people actually said, so what is that again? They were writing it down. Like, yeah, yeah, just like I said, you know, it's on, just Google it. Throw it in YouTube. Throw it in Facebook. You're going to find these things. You know? mm-hmm. If we pick up anybody new, well, it might be from there. Who knows? Figure, well, it's a, it's a forum. Yeah, sure. That's a good thing. You always pitch your stuff if you can. Yeah. Every time I got on somebody else's podcast, which is about four or five times, I always pitch that shit, so. Yeah, yeah, I just I figured I got a room full of people with people standing against the wall. I'm going to, like, yeah. <laughs> captive audience, exactly. <laughs> I got a captive audience. I'm going to get you. I saw you saw Andrew Prime died. Yeah, know. I saw it from you, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, somebody had posted, like, I just heard minutes ago. So I said, okay, I'm on my phone. I, I got, I can find these pictures on my phone. Yeah, I met him. Well, as you can see by the picture of me, I'm, like, I had hair, so. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't remember Andrew Prime being there. <laughs> well, it was probably 90, might be the Crown Plaza. Hmm. Yeah, I think it was the Crown Plaza in Secaucus. So I think the first time I went to one of these things was 99, 98, 99, somewhere around there. Okay. Because my yeah. wife was already here. I had people telling me about it, like, oh, yeah, go there. I'm like, I heard about it, but no. Back when I was working at the, but that was, you know, mid-90s. But I had never been. Yeah, that was the Crown Plaza, I believe, in Secaucus. And um, don't think it was, it could be wrong, though. It could have been a Sheridan. Who remembers? Yeah, he seemed nice enough. I mean, you know, memory back in those days was Paul Manti, Robinson Crusoe, Mars, and mm-hmm. Thorne, Martine Beswick, first time showing up in those things. You know, it's. Yeah, Diane Thorne, I remember her being there in one of those tent ones when at the other one from Secaucus. Maybe when she was there, maybe when Ron Jeremy and uh, Huggy Bear were there. You know. Oh, it was way before that. It was way before that. Yeah, yeah, she was she was like in this room. They have to find a place where you're not going to get this kind of crowding, which I'm sure really deters people from coming back. To like, That's part of the problem, yeah, because it's like bumper to bumper with everybody, and you can't move around. People are smacking into you. I mean, I always joke about that thing about uh, giving Tom Savini flats, but it wasn't just like me trying to be a dick because you know, I'm not a big fan of his. The thing is that there's no room. You're like bumper to bumper and people are stopping in front of you. Like, Come on, get moving here. So, you know, you're walking so close to everybody. People on the left, people on the right. You, can, you have no elbow room, no wiggle room. My wife's like crowded behind me and I'm like stepping on the guy's heels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 a thing. And and. I, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do, but I, it's, it's funny. The only reason I brought it up, because like three to four people actually said to me, did you hear? I'm like, no. And by the third person, I was like, played stupid. Like, no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know? Yeah. I found out that one of the reasons why I only had two Q&As, he was testing me. Because he figured he, I, he probably thought I wasn't going to come. Mm-hmm. And two, because I had so many things going on in my life, like. Can I do it? Yeah. 
you know, how did it go? Then Sunday he said, you know, all these people are coming over to me. He said, they, they were really happy. He says, you're going to do double that next time. I'm like, right, thanks. Because <laughs> <laughs> the problem is three to four is good. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start making it four to five, it's like, I can't talk for that long. Come yeah. on. Yeah, especially if they're back-to-back. Especially if they're back-to-back. So this is going to be a short show, I assume. So do you want to test this and then let me know? All right, let's do that.